<coughs> Before I turn my microphone on, hey, it's good to see you all this morning. Please come join us today at the park because we have 14 pounds of carne asada and 10 pounds of tacos, I mean of chicken, that we're going to make into tacos. So, uh, and that's both for us, by the, tacos are free for us, free for you, uh, but we're also going to bless our community. We want to be a blessing in our city, and so we're going we're gonna to find anyone and everyone who wants to eat a taco today and make sure that they eat a taco on Cinco de Mayo. How many of you celebrated uh, Star Wars Day yesterday? Any Star Wars fans? May the fourth be with you. Um, if you've never heard of that, there you go. Uh, you may not care, and that's okay, but there's, I guarantee there's a lot of people around the world who do. Um, and on that note, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. Hey, we're going to continuing a series that we started last week. It's a, it's a two-part series, so it started last week, and it's ending today. Um, but we started talking last week about being made perfect, made perfect. I mentioned last week that uh, you know, we, we celebrated Easter Sunday, this day that, that we remember what Jesus did for us, that he came and he died on the cross, that he, he rose again, that he forgave us of all of our sins, and that he declared us to be righteous. And of course, in light of that, we all went into that next week and none of us sinned at all, right? And, and maybe, maybe you met, messed up that week before, but then this week you got it all right, right? No. No, because we are in process. We are in process. We know what God has done for us, but we are definitely people in process, and we come to the Lord in our brokenness, understanding this is that He ministers to us, not in our broken, bro, in, in, out of perfection, but in our brokenness, and makes us perfect. I shared last week this illustration. You can see up on the screen there's a piece of pottery and we can go to the next slide and, and get the words off of there, and we'll see that a little more clearly. It's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. Kintsugi. And kintsugi is this, this process by which they'll take a, a piece of pottery that has been broken, and they will mend it. They will put it back together, but they don't just use super glue. Right? How many of you turn to the super glue, and maybe you've got like the two-part epoxy that you squeeze and you mix together? That's the way I like to go. Uh, they don't use that. What they do is they take a lacquer that is uh, made with gold dust, and they fill the cracks of that, that vessel, and they mend it, and they put it back together with precious metals. And it ends up being, like this jar you see, uh, just a work of art, a work of art. In fact, what, what fills the gaps and the cracks and the brokenness ends up being more valuable and makes the piece more valuable than it was before. And this is a, a great picture of what God does in, in our lives, that He takes the broken pieces of who we are and He puts them together through His love and His grace and His mercy, through His blood that was shed at Calvary, through His resurrection, and He puts us together, and what ends up resulting is something that is more valuable than it was before, that you and I are more valuable with the touch of Jesus in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that God didn't care about you before, because that's absolutely not the case. But I think sometimes we have this idea that we can only come to God when we've got it all figured out. And God's going, no, 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 you don't have the answers. You can't figure it out. I figured it out for you, and I'm making you holy. I've restored you. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8 says this, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. See, the potter has the ability to restore. He has the ability to fix us because he made us. Amen? It's what allows Paul to make this statement, this verse that we looked at last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 says, that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. No, Paul is not confused or delusional, right? How many of us are like, I delight in suffering. 
I delight in persecution. I delight when life is hard. None of us, right? I don't see any hands going up, so I would say we're in agreement. We don't delight in those things. Yet Paul is saying, I, I delight in it. Why? Because he has captured and he understands the essence of kintsugi. Not, not the art form, but the idea behind it is that in his brokenness, God's perfection comes through. That he makes us strong. And the strength that we receive from him is so much better than what we had before. And it gives us great perspective for our lives and the way that God wants to move in our lives. We took a look last week at the rich young man and the encounter that Jesus had with him. And he comes and he asks of Jesus, what must I do to inherit or gain eternal life? And, and so Jesus and him have a dialogue. If you missed that message, by the way, you can listen to that on the app or at thriveglendor.org. Um, but there's two things, two questions that that young man makes or statements that he makes. He says, what must I do? And then he says, what do I still lack? And he gives an answer that's firmly rooted in the law. In fact, Jesus says, you need to keep the commandments. And he says, I've done those. But he knows that it's not enough, that something else is missing. And he says, what do I still lack? And we read last week in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he, that being Jesus, listen to this church, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Again, the writer here of Hebrews is not confused because it seems like an oxymoron. How can you make something perfect if it's still being made holy? Right? That God has made us perfect, but we're still being made holy. That's the process that we're in. And it's one of those things when we come to the Lord, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. Quite frankly, it's because we know us. You know you. Am I right? You know what's in your heart. You know what goes through your mind. And there's days where, let's just be honest, you don't feel perfect. Hello? It's quiet in this church this morning. Stop thinking about tacos. All right. Let's. <laughs> he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see, perfection in God's kingdom is not a matter of performance. It's a matter of standing. That your perfection is based on who you are in standing before Jesus Christ. He has made you perfect forever. We use the word justified. Jesus justified you before his father and you stand blameless and righteous before him but Jesus is also taking you through a process of sanctification where he says okay you're perfect that when God looks at you he is pleased with you he is pleased with you but he also knows that we have brokenness and broken areas that need to be tended to and he wants to fill those places in and fix those places and walk us through a process that makes us holy, makes us set apart. See, we live in a world where there's sin, sin is still around us. Jesus overcame the power of sin and death, but we are still in the presence of sin in this world. And we have, because of free will, the choice. We can choose to, to make mistakes. We can choose to give in to temptation, but we have to understand this, that our perfection before God doesn't change. It doesn't change. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4 and, and through 6 says this. We ended with this last week. Paul writes to the Philippian church, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, and listen to this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who will carry it on? Jesus will. His commitment is to say, hey, what I started in you, I will complete it. I will do the work. Now, do you partner with him? Absolutely. But I think sometimes we get that out of order and we go, okay, God, you started something, but now I just need to not mess it up. And then when we don't feel like we're doing well, we, we tend to pull away, don't we? We tend to isolate and say, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to you, God, when I'm doing better. So let me ask you this question this morning. What do we do 
when we don't feel perfect? What do you do when you don't feel perfect? Because let's be honest, when you don't feel that way, it's easy to get discouraged. It's even easy for it to become debilitating in our lives. That we, when we take stock of our lives and we look at the broken pieces and the chipped parts of our lives and we look at those things and go, you know, I'm not happy with this, so there's no way God's pleased with me. There's no way God can love me in this kind of condition. And so we just kind of back off and say, you know what, God, I'll come back to you when I figure out what this is. Uh, when I figure out how to fix the broken parts of my life, and we have no less power to fix our brokenness after the cross than we did before the cross, that he's still waiting for us to come to him, say, Lord, would you pick up the pieces? It can be debilitating, and we, we have this idea, I'll do it when. I'll start serving the Lord in this area. I'll start walking out this, this call on my life or I'll start engaging deeper things of the Lord when. And then it feels like when never comes. And we end up weeks and months and years and even decades down the road feeling guilty over the fact that we're not perfect and God's going, but you are. You are. You're exactly who I made you to be. And I just want to bring wholeness and healing to your life. I want to turn to the Old Testament and look at a story, um, an, an account of the life of Elijah out of 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn to 1 Kings 19? We're going to read a, a, a longer portion of Scripture this morning, um, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to read from verse 1 to 13 says this, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with a sword. And so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water, and he ate and drank and then lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. I imagine he said it a lot more whiny than I just read it. <laughs> then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains, and, uh, mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I'm going to stop there, take time today or this week to read the rest of the story. It's a great, great story. I'll give you a little background. Why, what, what's happening? What immediately precedes this is Elijah and his confrontation of the prophets at Mount Carmel. 
See, the, the land was filled with wickedness, and Ahab, the king, and his wife Jezebel had introduced the worship of Baal, and there were uh, the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah who had infiltrated the nation of Israel and had distracted the people from worshiping God. And so it all comes to a head on this mountaintop in the north part of Israel. In fact, I have some maps this morning because we need to understand how this journey went for Jesus. So if we could put the, the first map up there, you can see right at the top, just above where Tel Aviv is today. This is a modern map, but uh, these places, uh, historical places still exist there today. Where that little red X is, it's a little hard to see maybe, but right at the top of the screen, just south of Haifa, is Mount Carmel. It's not a super tall mountain, but it is, uh, it's, it's really a big hill with a flat piece at the top. And, and this was a, a holy place in Israel, and it was a place where they would go to worship. And so it's on this mountain that, that the standoff, this face-off happens where uh, you, you remember the story that the, the prophets of Baal come, and, and Elijah says, listen, we're going we're gonna to build these sacrifices, these altars, but we're not going to bring any fire we're going to pray to our respective gods and pray that they provide the fire. So we're going to prepare the sacrifice. And so all of the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah come and they build their altars and they wail and they cry and they weep and they cut themselves. And, and for days they're up there just, just making a noise. And when it's all said and done, there's no fire. And then Elijah comes and he builds his altar. This is in the middle of a drought in Israel. And if you understand anything about Israel and the Middle East, water is precious. It's a commodity. It is something that is highly sought after. And in, in this story, they're in the middle of a drought. And, and so Elijah builds the altar and they put the, the animal on it and the wood and they prepare it all. And then he sends the servants down the mountain to the spring, which is still there today. Uh, you, and they send them down and they fill up the jars and they bring these water jars and they soak and they douse this, this offering, this altar and then Elijah just very quietly prays, God, you're in control. I'm paraphrasing. God, you're in control. Show these people that you are the only true God. Fire falls down from heaven. I can't even imagine what it must have been like. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altar, consumes the fire, uh, the, the wood, consumes the animal, burns up the water in the trench, and it just, right, it's just this incredible display of the glory of God. And immediately Elijah says, put, put the false prophets to the sword, and they take him down the mountain, and they kill hundreds of these false prophets. Can I tell you, if you consider Elijah's ministry, this was the pinnacle. This was the high point, and he did some pretty amazing stuff. But when you look at the, the story of his life, oh my goodness, this was, this was phenomenal. He was at the top of his game. The next day, he gets a letter from Jezebel, the king's wife, the queen, she hears about the fact that all the prophets have died and, it was, and that Elijah was responsible. And she says, listen, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be like one of them. And we see this flip, this change. The man of God is now running for his life because he got a letter, a threaten, threatening letter. And so he runs, and the, the, the word says that he goes from Carmel and he goes down to Beersheba. And so you can see where... That's the journey he took. It's not that far, about 100, 110 miles, but he books it with his servant. He's like, I'm getting out of here. And he goes down to Beersheba, and then from there he goes out into the desert. See, Elijah was a mighty man of God. After Jesus, in Scripture, he's probably the one that is, is just viewed or considered to be the most person, powerful person in Scripture. In fact, it's said of Jesus when people would say, well, who do you say I am? And he's having that conversation. What do they say? Well, some say, you're Elijah, come back to life. Because the Israelites, the Jews, knew that Elijah was a big deal. He's a mighty, mighty man of God, a prophet of Israel, and he has this bold, faith-filled, dramatic, and powerful, and victorious encounter with God on this mountain. 
and the next day gets scared and runs. It's in Beersheba that he leaves his servant and he goes out into the desert, into the wilderness. And there's nothing. If you go, you go to Israel today, you get into the southern part of the country where Beersheba is there. There's, it's desert. There's nothing out there. To this day, there's nothing out there. And he goes and wanders off into the desert. And what does he say to God? I have had enough. God, I've had enough. Have you ever felt that way? You ever said that to God? God, I've had enough. I, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I'm done. I'm at wit's end. Isn't it comforting to know that, that the mighty man of God in the Old Testament said the same thing? That he had such a bad day that he was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Maybe there's a place in your life where you're going, God, I can't do this anymore. It seems like everything is against me, and at some point, I saw your hand moving in my life, but right now, I am at wit's end. I can't go on. Can I tell you, that's such an awesome place to be, not because it feels good, but it's because in our brokenness, it's where we recognize, God, we need you. See, because when I'm having a mountaintop experience, I can actually forget that God is the one is in control. And I can start going, yeah, I, I did that. But it's in our brokenness that we go, God, I can't. I can't. In fact, he's so low. He's so depressed. He's so afraid that he prays and he says, God, would you take my life? I don't even want to live anymore. Can we just agree you have to be pretty low to, to pray that kind of prayer, to have that kind of thinking? The enemy has to tell you all kinds of lies to get you to that place. And so here's this great man of faith. Let's just be real for a minute. He's suicidal. He's done. God, I don't want to live. Now, he's a man of faith, and so he says, God, you kill me. You do it. But I just don't want to live anymore. Interestingly, Elijah is one of the very few people in Scripture who never died. Isn't that great? God says, I'm not going to answer your prayer. That's not a good prayer. I hear your pain, but no. Isn't it good that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers? Right? God, would you just? And he's like, no, because i got something better for you. God, kill me. And God says, no, in fact, you're not going to die. And eventually would take him up into heaven in a pretty magnificent, splendorous way. It was just incredible. He's in this really low, low point. And so what does he do? He's under a bush, under a tree. A broom tree is just a small desert plant. So he's hiding out from the sun because it gets hot in the desert. And he gives out all of this energy, cries out to God, and he gets in the shade and he falls asleep, takes a nap. I love that scripture records this account. It seems so insignificant, but as we'll see in a minute, this is so key for us to get. He falls asleep in the midst of all of this emotion and in the midst of giving out and pouring out and taking a stand and, 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 and being on this mountaintop. He, he's just at a place where he's spent. So he finds a shady spot, whines at God, complains a little bit, and then falls asleep. And what happens next is so key for us to understand when it comes to those moments where we don't feel perfect. Because God knows we don't feel perfect. He sees us when we don't feel perfect. And he doesn't feel any differently about us in those moments than where we're on the mountaintop. Right? David says to us in Psalm 23 that, that he walks with us through the valley and right on the mountaintop. He's in both places. And so here's Elijah taking a nap. He's exhausted. Falls asleep and... The word says that the angel comes and touches him and wakes him up and ministers to him. I love that the angel touches him. In fact, the angel of the Lord is the way that, that one translation puts it. When we read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, 
Uh, you can insert the name Jesus there. It's where we see Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord was the presence of Jesus Christ as he would minister. And so the angel comes and touches him. Why is that important? There's a tenderness about this moment. You ever been woken up by someone yelling at you? Come on, somebody, right? You wake up and someone, even if they're not yelling, they just start talking to you and you kind of do that whole like, right? Okay. Hello? Yeah? Anyone? And you're like, your heart's racing. Now, now Elijah is already in a broken, desperate place. His emotions are already spent. His nerves are already shot. And so rather than just speaking to him, because we know that the angel of the Lord, and when Gabriel shows up and other angels show up, they kind of freak people out, right? There's fear, there's light, it's, it's a lot. And so the angel of the Lord comes and he touches him. There's a moment of tenderness. And when Elijah wakes up and he looks over, what does he see? He sees a fire with some bread and he sees a jar of water. Notice what the angel doesn't do. He doesn't agree with Elijah. He doesn't say, yep, you're pretty messed up. You're right. He doesn't agree with him. The angel of the Lord doesn't scold him. Doesn't say to Elijah, hey, listen, wake up, buddy. What is wrong with you? Two days ago, you were doing really good, and your faith was really strong, and now you're a mess. What is your deal? Doesn't say that. Doesn't correct him. Doesn't say, hey, listen, Elijah, if only you had... If you had just done this a little differently, hey, when you got that letter, if you had stood your ground, or if you had replied by faith and declaration, doesn't even say that to him. Doesn't even advise him in this moment. Doesn't say, hey, okay, I get it, you're in a bad spot, but here's the next steps that you need to do. Here's how you navigate your way out of this and, tries to, and try to fix it for him. Anyone have any fixers in your life? We were like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And they're like, okay, well, here's the plan. And you're like, I don't need a plan. I'm not ready for a plan. And then you think some things that aren't very nice, and then you have to repent for that as well. Because you're like, I just need a moment. And maybe a hug. Wouldn't it be great if we got better at hugging people and loving them in tenderness than telling them what they should do? Because God doesn't even do that. Not in this moment. Here's what he does. He feeds him. He gives him bread. Now, we're in the desert. There's no 7-Eleven around the corner. There's no convenience store. There's no bakery. So the angel shows up and makes bread out of nothing, gets a fire going, prepares this meal for him, and feeds him. See, this is where Snickers has it right. You're not you when you're hungry. Elijah is tired and he's hungry, so what does God minister to? His needs, his immediate needs. He says, I'm going to feed you. And so he feeds him this bread and he gives them this water. And then what does Elijah do? Goes back to sleep. Gives him time to sleep and to rest. My first point this morning is this. God wants to care for you. God wants to care for you. When you feel imperfect, when you feel like I am messed up, I am not perfect in those moments, God says, hey, I would love to just extend grace and mercy to you and love you and care for you in the midst of your brokenness. See, his care isn't based on your performance. You don't have to perform for God to love you and care for you. Hello? It's in those moments where we just say, God, I'm broken and I need you. And he goes, great, I'd love to meet you in that. How often do we want God to just tell us what to do? Come on, let's, let's be honest for a minute. Our prayer life sometimes is like, God, would, I want you to answer this prayer. And if you would give me three steps on how to get out of this, that would be great. And he's like, no, not yet. I'm not going to just give you things to do. I need you to rest. I need you to trust. I need you to be refreshed. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 says this. Do you not know 
Have you not heard? Why would he say that? Because people didn't know and they hadn't heard or they'd forgotten. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, young, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God says, listen, you're going to forget this, so let me remind you, you're going to have bad days. You're going to get worn out. You're going to get tired. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. And the answer is not to just pick yourself up and dust yourself off. He says the answer is to hope in the Lord, to allow Him to minister and to refresh. So what happens with Elijah? He sleeps, he gets up, he eats, he drinks. Then what does he do after that? He sleeps again. And what happens when he wakes up? The angel has come back again and has given him more to eat and more to drink. You notice that this process can't be hurried. It has to take time. Could it be that for some of us, what we need is a nap? Listen to this, because we struggle with this. Like, you're squirming a little bit right now. Naps are for kids. No. Naps are for the tired. Sleep is for those who are worn out. And we live in a culture that tells us, go, 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 perform, 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 produce, produce, produce. And you know what? We honor those who sleep five hours a night because they are so productive and going down in flames in the process. God is not impressed. In fact, his heart grieves because he says, you are not sleeping enough. Just very practically, when, when we do marriage counseling, one of the things we, we advise couples, we tell couples is, don't argue at night when you're tired. It will not go well. Amen? Yeah, there's a lot more response than that one. It doesn't go well. We need sleep. God has built our bodies for food and for rest. Yet it's the thing that we neglect the most. By the way, we're having tacos today. And maybe a siesta, we'll see. <laughs> God knew what was ahead. In fact, he says in verse 7, get up and eat. And then he says these words, the journey ahead is too much for you. I need you to get ready. I'm going to prepare you for what is ahead. See, God knew what was ahead and prepared him for what was coming. My second point is this. God knows where you've been. God knows where you are. And God knows where you're going. Now, you might know that, but sometimes you forget that. God knows where you've been, He knows where you are, and He knows where you're going. And He's committed to healing your past, providing in the present, and preparing you for the future. Can I say that again? God is committed to healing your past, because don't we just carry our past with us sometimes? It's amazing how we can remember things from 20 years ago. Right like that. The mistake I made, right, fill in the blank. God says, I want to heal that. I want to heal the brokenness. He says, I know what you're going through right now, and I will provide for you whatever that provision looks like. I will provide for you in this moment. But he also knows where he, we're going, and he's saying, I will take care of your future. I will prepare you for what is com- com- coming. And so it says that he was strengthened by the the food that he took, and then he traveled for 40 days. So he goes from where he is in Beersheba or in that vicinity, and he goes to Mount Horeb. You might know Mount Horeb as this, Mount Sinai. It's the place where Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments. So we can put that map up. We'll continue this little journey. So he starts way up in the north. He runs to Beersheba, and then from there he travels down to Mount Sinai. Now it takes him 40 days. It's not a 40-day walk. But for whatever reason, God doesn't rush him. I imagine there was a lot more sleeping and eating and drinking and sleeping and eating and drinking. And maybe, maybe it was just because Elijah's like, I'm not in a hurry to get there. And maybe it was just because God's going, hey, there's no rush. 
let me minister to you along the way in the midst of the journey. Takes him to Sinai, the mountain of God. There's a significance, by the way, behind the 40 days. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Here we see Elijah, 40 days. Noah reigned for 40 days and 40 nights. So 40 is significant in the word of God. That's another sermon. But there wasn't a rush. And what God does is he takes him from a dangerous situation to a safe place. Takes him to a place where the threat against Elijah would be mitigated. Because hear me, church, the threat was real. Jezebel wasn't messing around. Those were not empty words. She had the authority and the manpower at her disposal to take him out. And so the threat was real, and so God puts some distance and gets him not only at a safe place, but takes him to a sacred place, a holy place. And so when Elijah arrives after his 40 days of traveling, it says in verse 9 that he went into a cave, and what did he do? He slept. See a pattern here? Some of you are like, I'm going to go home and take a nap. (laughs) Go for it. We have to find a place where we can rest in the presence of God. And then then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, okay, Elijah, what are you doing here? And I don't think it was a, what are you doing here? It was gentle, it was tender. Elijah, what's going on? Now, Now, God knows, right? God knows. Can we agree? God knows why Elijah's there. God knows what's going on, so why does he ask? I wrote this in my notes. God knows an Elijah vents. God says, what's going on? And Elijah goes, blah. And he just gets it out. Sometimes you got to get stuff off your chest. You need to find a safe place, a trusted person, a God-fearing person, and talk it out. Did God need to hear what Elijah had to say? No, he already knew what he was going to say before he said it. Did Elijah need to get it out? Absolutely. Because there's something about therapeutic, there's something so therapeutic about talking it out. That's why people go for counseling and for therapy. And good counselors listen, they don't talk. Because sometimes we just need a safe place to express what's going on inside of us. And listen to this. Again, in this place, God doesn't rebuke him, chastise him, or correct him. He just listens. Now, is what Elijah's saying accurate or even healthy? No, but it's real. God's saying, I want, to meet, I want to minister to you in this. And so here's what God says. He says, come outside of the cave into my presence. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And, and here's what happens. There's a huge wind that comes by and it starts moving the mountain around. And then it says God wasn't in the wind. And then there was an earthquake and rocks are splitting open. And then it says that God wasn't in the earthquake. And then it says there was an incredible fire that burned. And then it says that God wasn't in the earthquake. Now, remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai in this very same mountain, what did the people see? They saw wind. I just hit myself in the head. Um, They saw wind, they saw fire, there was an earthquake. All of these things were present uh, in the presence of the Lord when Moses got the Ten Commandments. And so what did the people associate the law of God with? Wind, fire, and earthquakes. And God is awesome. He's powerful, he's magnificent, and and we know that he at times expresses his presence through the wind, through the fire, and through the earthquake, all throughout scripture. But in this moment, it says that God wasn't in those things. And then it says that there was a gentle whisper, a still, small voice, and Elijah hears God in the whisper. Can I tell you this morning, Grace for our brokenness comes in a whisper, not in a shout. God's grace for you will come in a whisper in the midst of your brokenness as you sit in the presence of God. He will not shout at you. He will whisper his love to you as he starts mending 
and organizing and putting the pieces back together. David writes in 2 Samuel 22, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. And then he says this, he shields all who take refuge in him. He's the perfect one. He's the flawless one. And he says, now come and hide in me. Because there's times and there's places where you know that you're not those things. Jesus said it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, being perfect and feeling perfect are not the same thing. Jesus says, you're perfect because I made you perfect. When you put your faith in him and you surrender your life to him, the work of Jesus at the cross is done. And you stand as blameless and righteous and perfect. You have been made perfect by Jesus. But there's definitely days where you're going to go, I don't feel it today. I'm not, I'm not feeling it. My emotions aren't on board. And it could even be that yesterday was the best day ever. And now there's confusion God, how is it I had such a great day yesterday and today I'm so spent? As we talk to pastors and as I share in groups and as I get to, to, uh, to meet with brothers and sisters who lead congregations, we hear this over and over and over again. Sunday is great and Monday is hard. Like more pastors quit on Monday than any other day of the week. Why? Because we're no different to Elijah and neither are you. That just because we perform well on one day doesn't mean the next day we're just going to keep that going. And don't we tend to kind of beat ourselves up or even beat other people up? It's like, well, you were doing good, and then you messed up. Now, there's place for discipline, and there's place for taking responsibility. But can I tell you, it comes after sleep and rest and food and relationship. See, what God says what God says you are may not always be what you feel, but that doesn't make it any less true. I invite Jacques to come. We're going to move into a time of communion and breaking bread. And it's so appropriate for us to close this way. See, because the angel of the Lord, Jesus, comes and he provides bread and drink. He brings the bread and the cup to Elijah, and he says, this is what will refresh you as you partake of these things and then rest in me. As we remember what Jesus did for us at the cross, as we break bread and as we take the cup, in the same way Jesus would say, these are the things, these are the elements that bring life, are the reminder of the wholeness that is available to us. And I want to encourage you as we receive the bread and as we take the cup, maybe you're in a place like Elijah was where you're going, Lord, I've had enough. I'm done. I can't keep going. I don't know what's ahead. I don't know what the answer is. And God would say, good. Receive from me then what I can do for you in providing Life through the bread, the body of Jesus Christ given for us, broken and beaten, so that we could have wholeness and restoration in our bodies. We said, you know, the sleep thing, we might chuckle at it, but here's the reality, is that Jesus came to minister wholeness to our bodies. That's why his body was broken, to minister wholeness to our bodies. He cares about how your body feels. I mentioned earlier, we had testimonies this week of people being healed of cancer. God wants to bring healing. He is moving in power. He wants to meet us in that way that he cares for us. He comes, we're reminded of the cup, his blood that was shed for us. This cup of the new covenant, this new covenant that says you're not under the law, you're under grace. This new covenant that says when you put your faith in Jesus that you're declared righteous and perfect before the Father. The cup is the reminder of that promise for us, so it doesn't matter what we're walking through. He says, I'm with you, I want to care for you, I know where you've been, I know where you are, and I know where you're going. 
and I want to meet you. I want to meet you in the midst of my presence and minister to that need. So I invite the ushers to come. We're going to take the bread first. Jacques's just going to play quietly, and we're going to receive, take communion just alone this morning. I want you to have a moment with the Lord. So as you receive the bread, just hold on to it, and then we'll We'll pray and then we'll, we'll partake together. Father God, we thank you for your body, Jesus, for your body given and broken for us. God, in the same way that you brought sustenance to Elijah, your body, represented by this bread, brings life to us, to our bodies. It ministers to very physical, practical needs bring whole, wholeness and healing to every part of our lives. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. This bread, this body given for you. I might not know what your need is, but God does. Would you receive from him the, te- the gentle, tender touch of mercy and love that he would want to give to you as we receive the bread together? Thank you, Jesus. It's crucial. It's essential. The writer of Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus becomes once and for all the perfect sacrifice, the perfect offering. And he sheds his blood for us to cover our sin once and for all. Listen to me, church. It's done. Jesus said on the cross, cross, it is finished. It is finished. And then what we have in the blood of Jesus is the, the means to our perfection. It's not about what you do, it's about what he did. And then we just get to be in a place where we receive from him. Isaiah said, have you not heard? Have you not seen? Don't you remember? Jesus said that we need to do this as often as we gather. Because I think God knows. We forget. We can get to a place where we go, God, it's about what I do. And he's like, no, it's about what I did. We stand together. Jesus, it is finished. It is done. That what you say we are is what we are. And that no lie of the enemy will ever change that. Thank you for your blood shed at Calvary for us. 
for the forgiveness, for the remission of our sin. You have washed us white as snow, and that through your blood that we have entered into a new covenant with you. And that we get to engage with you, not as a God of wind and earthquakes and fire, but a God of tender mercies. Thank you that you are close. May you minister to every need. We give you praise. Let's receive the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. As we close this morning, I'll let you know our prayer team is still available. If there's any point of need in your life, anything that you, go, you would say, I, I need someone to just agree with me in prayer, we would love that opportunity. It is good to worship with you today. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Hey, we're going to have a great afternoon. We invite you to join us at the park. Go, go grab a side dish or some drinks. We're going to have tacos available, and we're just going to hang out for a couple hours. Uh, we're going to have stuff going for the kids, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I am going to ask this this morning. We don't usually ask this, but I know on Sundays where we have activities going, we tend to kind of jet out of here real quick, but we still have to put church away. Um, and so if, you, if you're able to help out with just stacking chairs, and um, I, honestly, the biggest point of need we have is this, stacking chairs and getting them into the container. And after that, the rest of the team can really take care of them. So if you can hang around for a minute and, and do that. That would be wonderful. It's good to see you all. Bless you as you go today. Give someone a hug. It's cool.